Now, last Sunday, we started with Acts 6 and the problem that the Hellenistic Christian widows were facing with the unequal distribution of food and finances compared with the Hebraic Christian widows. Uh, The solution provided by the apostles was simplicity itself. The men, and they were supposedly Hellenistic Christians themselves, meaning they were Greek-speaking, who brought the problem to the apostles, were told to identify seven trusted men of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit, and the apostles would appoint them to the task. Now, I pointed out that last week that these men were were not as so often taught the first deacons of the, of the Christian church. The word deacon is not used of them at all in this passage. The word, a root form of deacon is used to speak of what the apostles did not wish to do in the uh, carrying out of their duties. Everywhere in the New Testament, when deacons are mentioned... When a deacon is mentioned, it is mentioned as an office in the church every time. The role of deacon is large, and it's too large to go into here. We're not not really dealing with that today. The role of these men that were chosen was limited. They had a limited thing that they were going to do, very specific, to take care of the physical needs of a group of widows. Though both minister and chaplain cover the position. Now, I grew up in the Methodist church, and a minister was the pastor of the church. It was not a generic term. In fact, until I moved up to here to the mountains, I really didn't know what a pastor was. They were ministers to me. But the, the true word, both minister and chaplain, cover this position that these seven men are going to fill. But there is actually... A real word that covers what they're doing. And they were called to be almoners. Now, I've never heard the word almoner in my life before. Not before. Yesterday. And an almoner is simply someone who distributes alms. It has fallen out of favor in the English language. Like I say, I've never heard of it before. But they were almoners. One who distributes alms. They were the directors of this very specific Christian charity. Now, although they weren't officially deacons, the job they performed would be rolled into the function of deacons in the future. This is one of the things that deacons do do traditionally, is handle the finances of a church, handle the distribution that is necessary in the functioning of a body. Keep in mind... The fact that there is a church office of deacon should not stop anyone of serving as a deacon within the church. A deacon is described as being a servant in places. It is called a table server, is what the apostles in this passage referred to a deacon as being, as serving a table. And as I pointed out last week, Someone serving a table last week wasn't coming to your table with the order in their arms. They were kneeling down before you in the dirt or on the floor when they were clearing the places. Uh, Now, I've never been a busboy, okay? Never in my life. 
this is one thing I've never aspired to doing, okay? I'm told it is a very dirty job. This is what the apostles were referring to when they said, we are not going to, we do not feel it is appropriate for us to serve tables. I pointed out last week that the word deacon actually translates what it really, really means is as through the dirt. Okay? And uh, deacons serve the church and many times it is as through the dirt. Today we look at Acts 6, 5 through 7. Now it's just three verses and it doesn't seem like there's much there. But we'll look at what we know of the men called to the ministry and we only know anything about four of them. But we'll also take a trip back to 900 B.C. uh, and the high priest Zadok. And then um, we'll head up to the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, uh, fragments of uh, what were found in Cave 4 and 6, just in case Robin wants to know for sure, being one of our resident scientists here. And then a revisit to uh, just where did all the Jews in the Roman Empire get to. I pointed out before, and well, that at the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire, there were about 6 million Jews. 1 million of them were in Israel itself, 5 million in the empire. By the 3rd century, the Roman census had the Jewish population in the empire at 250,000 people. 95% of the Jews had disappeared from the Roman Empire. We're going to briefly revisit that once again. Let's get started by reading, and I'm going to start and read what we covered last week. It was just four verses before getting into the next three. Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's where we left off last week. And starting in verse 5 today, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So in verse 5, the advice given by the apostles pleased the whole gathering, which was the group of the original disciples probably measuring 100, 120 people at that point. They were pleased because they saw a solution that was in line with the will of God. 
Christians from the very beginning have taken very seriously the combination of spiritual and material concerns within the body. In fact, they've been concerned about that without the body, as I pointed out before. Christians through history have started the first hospitals, the first orphanages to save lives, and those were not necessarily among their own people, but among the population that they were living in. It's further pointed out that uh, Luke's narrative here suggests that to be fully biblical is to be constantly engaged in adapting traditional methods and structures for meeting existing situations for the welfare of the church and the outreach of the gospel. Just because you've always done it one way doesn't mean it's the right way in every situation. The Jews had already had for a thousand years distribution of alms to their widows. They had food distribution and they had financial distribution to meet their needs. But when the Christians are faced with a problem within their own body, instead of letting the Jewish system handle it, the Christians set up their own distribution network to take care of the needs of the existing church. Continuing on in verse 5b, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Stephen is the first named of our almoners. A man full of faith, it says, and the Holy Spirit. We will see much more of Stephen as his story takes up the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And that will start next week. The Philip named here is also known as Philip the Evangelist. We'll be seeing more of him in chapter 8. First as He evangelizes Samaria, which is quite a thing for a Jew or a Christian to do. And then, when he's sent to minister to the Ethiopian official that we know as the Ethiopian eunuch. The next named is Prochorus. Christian history names him as an amenusus. I was practicing this. Amenusus. And if you don't know what an amenusis is, I have to tell you when I go through and I'm reading different sources, I can tell who's reading whom. John MacArthur happened to be reading F.F. Bruce because they both use this same structure of the amenusis. An amenusis is like a private secretary. It is the one, uh, Paul had one, but it is one who uh, in this case is taking dictation of the letters and And Prochorus wrote down what John, the Apostle John, dictated to him. So he was very close to the inner circle of the Christian church. History also says that Prochorus was the bishop of Nicodemia in in present-day Turkey. Nicodemia, which we don't hear anything about nowadays, perhaps it does not exist, I did not look it up, was the senior capital in the... um, Roman Empire, as I was researching more stuff that we're going to have in here that didn't make it into the sermon, but is making it in right now, Eusebius was also a bishop of Nicodemia, and it was in that position that he baptized Emperor Constantine 300 years from now. So, 
Of the next three, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, we know nothing. They were named in the Bible, but beyond that we have no information. But that also teaches us a letter. As I said earlier, how special is it to have your name mentioned in the Bible and come down for 2,000 years? Unless, of course, your name is Ananias or Sapphira or maybe Simon the Magician, okay? Other than that, you know, just think of the people who are named in the Bible, the great, the great saints, I'll use that term, that have gone before us and have found the favor of God to be mentioned in the Bible. But that is the startlingly smallest minority of Christians that have ever lived. By far more voluminous are those we've never heard about. Are the Christians who have lived their life, served their God, and died unknown. And that's most of us. And it will be most of us. It will be me. But they lived. They served. They advanced the kingdom. And they may be unknown to us, but they are known to God and were used mightily by him, even if we know nothing about them. The last name of the seven is Nicholas. He is further identified as a proselyte, which is a convert convert to Judaism, with all that entails, and he's from Antioch. Writings from the 5th century AD identify the heretical group, the Nicolaitans, with him, Nicholas. But anyone can claim anything 500 years later. Okay? Nothing contemporaneous has Nicholas having anything to do with the Nicolaitans. So, Scripture says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and I'll leave that there. Verse 6 says, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. These seven, chosen by the Hellenistic Christians, had their ministry endorsed by the apostles. The laying on of hands was a bestowal of blessings. The Mishnah, it was long known in Judaism, the Mishnah, uh, the writings basically after the destruction of Jerusalem of the uh, Jewish scholars says that all the members of the Sanhedrin were admitted to the circle by the laying on of hands. It was used for commissioning successors. It was also used to express identification with a person's ministry. And finally, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, in this short phrase, Luke points out that through the continuing teaching of the apostles, the already large Christian presence in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Beyond that, a great many priests became Christians. Now, how can a great many priests become Christians and yet we're told that the nation of Israel rejected Jesus? Okay? The nation, as it is said, is made up of its leaders. 
the high priests, the temple priests, who were largely Sadducees, the scribes, who were mostly Pharisees, along with the Pharisees themselves, and the Sanhedrin, which was composed of both Sadducees and Pharisees. These leaders were emblematic of the nation of Israel, and they, indeed, rejected Christ. But Sadducees and Pharisees did not make up the majority of the priests in Israel. Uh, The historian Jeremiah pointed out in detail that there were over 8,000 ordinary priests in Israel that served the temple. And uh, along with that, there were 10,000 Levites who served the temple. Now, we know that in in the Old Testament law given by Moses, that the Levites were to serve as the priests. But a thousand years down the line, there are so many Levites that apparently it was given up that they all had to serve the temple. However, traditionally, these Levites identified themselves with the temple. So there's 8,000 ordinary priests, meaning not high priests, not temple priests. There's 10,000 Levites who typically served two weeks a year in the temple. These priests and Levites were socially inferior to the temple priests and the high priests. They didn't hang out together. Frankly, they were looked down upon. They weren't of the same social strata as the high priests. But their simple piety led them to accept the clear messianic prophecy fulfillments in the Christian message. These priests... And Levites did not give up their position in the Jewish temple. The, because, frankly, Christians were Jews. They were seen as a Jewish... There was nothing wrong with a Jewish priest becoming a Christian. Let's put it another way. They were the first Messianic Christians to worship. This is who they were. They did not give up their position. They were still affiliated with the temple, which in history will end in about 70 years, and they'll be pushed out of the temple, and Christianity will be a thing unto itself. But if we're dealing with A.D. 30 to A.D. 33 right here, we've got 70 years to go. That happens about A.D. 105 that... The Christians are thrown out of the synagogues. Priests, Levites, common Jews gather together as Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And then there were the Essenes. Now we've talked about the Essenes before. Four groups, sects in in, uh, Judaism were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. At the destruction of Jerusalem, as we've seen before, the Sadducees were destroyed. They're gone. The Zealots, they were the focus of the destruction of Jerusalem. They're gone. The Essenes, about the same time, and we're going to look at this just a little bit, disappear in the fog of history. We don't know where they went. They were a rural living people. They lived in the Though they were city-dwelling, they were small city-dwelling, and they lived by themselves. They were communal. They shared many things together. They were nonviolent. 
They wanted a simple life. And yet at the destruction of Jerusalem, they disappeared. And the other, and the one Jewish, other Jewish sect that survived were the Pharisees, which are the forefathers of what we have in Judaism today. The Pharisees survived and were the teachers. As I pointed out before, at this time they took for their teachers the title rabbi. Before then it meant master. Now it means teacher after the destruction of Jerusalem. Back to the Essenes. The Essenes are also called Qumran Covenanters. They were the people who were in Qumran. If you know the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They also called themselves the Sons of Zadok. Now, bear with me just a little bit. Zadok was the high priest. He shared it with another high priest under David and then Solomon. He's not the original high priest. That would have been Aaron. But he is a son of Aaron. And under David and Solomon, he's the first temple high priest. His line dominated the high priests from the year 900 to the year 172. In the year 172, Onias, the high priest, was murdered in Jerusalem. Menelaus, who was a very Hellenized Jew, and last week we went through the trouble between the Hellenized Jews and the uh, Hebrew Jews, Menelaus, a very Hellenized Jew, and not of the line of Zadok, usurped the high priesthood. And at that point, 172, the sons of Zadok, the Essenes, left the priesthood and showed up in Qumran. From the Zadok fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls of Caves 4 and 6, we see that the Essenes of Qumran saw themselves as the true priests of Israel. So we have a competing priesthood that was not official, but they showed themselves and called themselves the true priests of Israel and the elect of the nation. So between the ordinary priests, 8,000, the Levites serving the temple of 10,000, and the four to 6,000 Essene priests, we have 22 to 25,000 priests at given times in Jerusalem. And this is who was converted, where it says a great many It is thought that when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 and the Essenes disappeared, it was because they were wholly absorbed into Christianity. The book of Acts is the history of her early Christianity, but what is the history about? Uh, If Christianity was a fringe movement, if it was here for a moment and then petered out. The history of Christianity could have been covered as simply as Gamaliel had covered the testimony of Thetis and Judas the Galilean when he counseled the Jewish leaders. 
that if it is of man, it will be gone. If Christianity is of man, it would end. But as I started teaching this portion of scripture, one of my first questions was, what happened to the Jews? Where did they go? What happened to the Roman Empire that only 5% of the self-identified Jews remained by the 2nd century AD? Then I saw that the Essenes disappeared from Israel after AD 70. This could possibly be accounted for by the destruction of Jerusalem. Sadducees were destroyed, the Zealots were destroyed, but the Christians weren't. The Christian Jews also survived the destruction, so where did the Essenes go? Well, a bigger question can be asked of looking at the whole of the Roman Empire. The first and second century in the empire was marked by terrible persecution of Christians. Nero, in 50 to 60 AD, was terrible to Christians. Marcus Aurelius, who is known for being one of the best emperors who truly wanted to be a good man, also persecuted the Christians terribly. In the years 161 to 180, Decius followed in 249 to 251 a horrible, horrible emperor. Gallus, 251 to 253. Emperor Valerian was next, 253 to 266. Diocletian was terribly cruel with his persecution of Christians lasting from 283 to 305. And in 313 AD, it was over. It was gone. Okay? It is estimated that Christianity grew at a 3.4% rate from its founding until Constantine. That may not sound like much, 3.4%, but it's the same as compound interest. When you compound the growth, it is quite something. From a handful of disciples in AD 33, 150 years later, there were 200,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. 150 years later, the majority of the Roman Empire, 70 million people, the majority were Christians. By AD 350, the Roman Empire was Christian. The ultimate question is not where did the Jews go or what happened to the Essenes. The question, the big question is what happened to the pagans? Where did all the pagans go? Because it will be my assertion here that the pagans went the same place that the Jews and the Essenes went. They became Christians. Now, mind you, we all know, theoretically we all know, some of the kids won't know, when Constantine became Christian, we're sort of worried about Constantine a little bit, about his ideas of Christianity. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later. I don't know if any of you have heard of Tom Holland. He's a popular historian. I just read his book, Dominion, last fall. And it is quite a revealing look. He is not a Christian. Now, the last time I said this, I said this about Jordan Peterson. Somebody came up and said, Jordan Peterson's a Christian now, okay? Well, 
As far as I know, Tom Holland is an agnostic. That's how he described himself. And his book, Dominion, is about the influence Christianity has had through the ages. As a young man, Tom Holland revered Greek and Roman culture until he came to see that these civilizations were brutal and lacking morality. And he began delving into it. And Dominion is about how Christianity conquered the ancient world, turning the cross from an instrument of torture and death into the symbol of victory over brutality. Holland argues that so thoroughly his Christian ethics and morality conquered the world that Christian thought dominates all ethical and moral ideas of today, even among those who are not Christian. You know, they say we live in a post-Christian Western world. And yet, the ideas of Christianity are still reverberating down through time. Because before Christianity, life was meaningless. We know this from the stories of, I mean, when I was teaching this earlier, you know, and Peter asked to be crucified upside down so that he was not... Well, this was not unknown to the Romans. The Romans invented ways to crucify people. They already knew about crucifying somebody upside down. The fact that Peter wanted to be crucified up down, well, okay, sounds fine to them. They were not a humanitarian people. In Western, in the, in the Western world especially, the norms of nations and peoples in dealing with others are Christian norms and are so ingrained in the last 2,000 years that Christian influence will never die out. Uh, even as some countries seem to have entered you know, the post-Christian era. Well, animist Africa and Confucius uh, China, not to mention Korea, are brimming with vibrant Christianity. Violence and repression from their governments is having the same effect Roman persecution had on the Christian church, the strengthening of the church. You see, Christ has built his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it doesn't matter if the Roman authorities looked at a handful of people in Jerusalem and said, we can stomp you out. If Christ built it, it will last. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's finish in prayer here. Lord, we are the beneficiaries of so many brave and godly men and women We stand on their shoulders as we live our lives. Without their testimony, though unknown, we would not be here. Without those who came before to study your word, to comment on it, to to write about it, to explain to me what it means, I would not be here. Lord, we know that your church will prevail against the gates of hell. 
Lord, we just pray that you would keep us strong for whatever comes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.